Amen. You can be seated. We're going to pick back up this week. You know, last week we took off from our series to kind of inaugurate our first week in the building. This week we're going to pick back up in our series that we've been working through as we've studied the seven festivals that God appointed for Israel to observe. Uh, as these holidays, what they were really all about, these holidays were given to the Israelites to cause them to remember and think about God. It's almost as if, if, if God had stepped away from them, and you could see this actually in their life, and they had, they had holiday and event and, and appointed time after appointed time, and yet they were still very stiff-necked, rebellious people. If God had stepped back and not given them these holidays to observe, you could see that they easily would have just quit following Him and quit observing and quit, quit thinking of Him. And so these holidays, they, appointed times where they were specifically to consider God and worship God so that all of their life was then turned and given towards God. And and that's the reality of where we've approached it. It's not my intent that you start observing the Sabbath law like they did in Jerusalem or, or the Israelites observed the Sabbath law. We're not bound by that law. We are freed from that law. However, there is something special about trusting God, celebrating God by resting and trusting in Him to be your provider. There's something very special, and it's an act of worship to set aside a day a week, whether it's the seventh day or the first day. This is a beautiful and wonderful day to come together and celebrate God together, to set this day aside and consecrate it for Him, to direct your attention to Him. It establishes your week. It gives you a perspective through the week. And so that's what we, how we approach the Sabbath. We celebrate God in the Sabbath, not by observing all the law that came and was given to the Israelites, but by set, setting it aside and resting in God to be our provider of all things. Our, our provider for our food, our provider for our money, the, our sustenance in life, but more importantly, our spiritual walk, our spiritual eternal life. We trust God to do that. In the Passover, we studied the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They go together. In the Passover, we see God's attributes revealed, His grace, His mercy, His justice, His wrath. We see all of it revealed, and we celebrate God as we recognize that He has provided for us redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. We're no longer slaughtering a lamb and putting the the blood on doorposts, and we're not eating the Passover meal per se, we do observe communion, and we do that in our church. We do that every week. But that's not the, the, the substance is fulfilled in Christ. And so as we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, the, the juice represents the blood of Christ as the Passover lamb. He is our source of redemption. The bread, the unleavened bread, is, is Jesus Christ's perfect life, His perfect body. It's never been touched by sin given for us so that we can be made to be without sin. Jesus Christ, in His work, it's called the great exchange. You've probably heard that term before. Jesus Christ gave us His righteousness and took our sin. And so we have been made unleavened or without sin in Christ. And He has taken our sin from us. So every week when we come to, to take communion, we celebrate God by remembering our redemption, by remembering the cost of our redemption, by, by, by focusing on the fact that we are now called to live a holy and unleavened life. And we do that every week. And, and these times and, and these events are set aside so that we can remember God in everything, so that it's not localized to one instant, 
but so that we don't forget about him altogether. The Feast of First Fruits. Two weeks ago, we studied the Feast of First Fruits. And the first fruit is represented in Christ in that he is the first one to be raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. He is our first fruits. And because he has been risen, when we hear the promise of eternal life and that we will be raised from the dead, that we will be given eternal life, and that our bodies, which will die and be put in the ground, will be raised up and we will be made new, that promise has substance to it. That promise actually means something because Jesus Christ is our first fruits having gone before us. And we celebrate God by now looking forward to Him, actually walking in expectation of this happening, looking forward to God's provision of eternal life so that one day you know the work He began in you when you first believed. The, the, the work he started when you first came to Christ will be fulfilled and you will be raised from the dead and you will be walking in his presence forever and ever and ever because we know the work God starts is the work that God finishes and we celebrate God. Every day we can celebrate God by just walking, expecting and looking forward to that, walking in hope and looking forward to what God's going to do. And the celebration of the first fruits, the feast of first fruits, were given to the Israelites to remind them that there was something more coming. This week, we look at the Feast of Weeks. It's a pretty interesting festival. There's a lot of connection, a lot, a lot of, a lot of inner workings between the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of First Fruits, and you're going to see that broken out. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to start reading verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. You'll be able to follow along. We'll read verses 15 through 22. You should count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You should count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah, they shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present the bread with the bread, seven lambs, a year old, without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. And they shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs, a year old, as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave, off, a wave offering before the Lord, with the two lambs, and they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day, and you shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It's a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. And I just want to point out just that last phrase, I am the Lord your God. I think that the emphasis there is that, hey, I am the Lord, the one who has authority to tell you to do these things. And so the expectation is, is that they're to follow this and actually institute it and practice it. So don't, don't miss that. They, he had all the right in the world to tell them to do this and to observe the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was the second of three pilgrimage festivals. That means that wherever they lived in Israel, all the men who were of age were expected at this time, just like at Passover and the Feast of Booths, 
they were at this time to get up and travel to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Weeks at Jerusalem. One of the three three feasts that they did that for. In addition, the Feast of Weeks was known as Pentecost. And the reason is, is because the way it fell in comparison to the other celebrations. So the Feast of Weeks, we see in the passage we read that the timing is based on 50 days, seven Sabbaths in a day, 50 days from the Sabbath that they went before the Lord and shaved the, or waved the sheath offering, which was the Feast of First Fruits. If you remember from two weeks ago, the Feast of First Fruits, they would go out and they would cut the first fruits of the barley, the very first part of the Sabbath, or the very first part of the harvest. They would bring it back to the priest and the priest would wave it before the Lord. How that happened, nobody really knows. Don't know what it really looks like, but that's what they would do. They would have these traditions and things that they would follow as that happened. The first fruits were waved, and the day after that, they started counting immediately. And seven days, or seven Sabbaths, or seven weeks later, they began, uh, they, they observed the, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. And so that's how it became known as Pentecost. So here we have, it's connected with first fruits. It happens 50 days later. And, and so in conjunction with that, it was the last of the spring festivals. In the spring, there was three festivals. The Sabbath was a weekly festival. It happened every week. I'm going to ask somebody to turn these lights down. They are cooking me. I don't know if you can see me, but if somebody could turn them down just a little bit. Thank you. Um, so they happened, the Sabbath happened weekly. It was a weekly festival unto God. It was consecrated every week, and that's what they, they would observe every week. Then Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and um, the Feast of Weeks all happened in the spring, and then Next week, we actually start in the fall festivals. But they were all consecrated. They were all set in the springtime right together, kind of working all in conjunction to demonstrate some things to us and some of those things we've already seen. The, 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 the demonstration of God's salvation, His redemption, the demonstration of Jesus Christ. I mean, if, if you remember back when we talked about the first fruits, Jesus died on Passover, was put in the grave before the, before the Feast of Unleavened Bread began because it was a high holy Sabbath day. And then on the Feast of First Fruits, he rose from the grave. Today, you're going to see how the fulfillment of that work is done on the Feast of Weeks 50 days later. But at this festival, two loaves of bread would be taken and made, and they would be brought before the Lord, and they'd be waved. And again, we don't know exactly what that looks like. It doesn't. I don't think it's a priest just standing out there pulling the Pentecostal thing, waving the bread around. I don't think that's what it looks like. But at some level, he... He, he moved it in front of the altar. He never put it on the altar. He never actually put it on, on this consecrated altar. He held it all the time, and he moved it back and forth before God. How that looks, I don't exactly know, but that's not necessarily important. What I want you to notice is that this bread, different from every other bread in every other festival that's been named so far, was actually leavened. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was unleavened, meaning it had no yeast in it. It never rose. If you've ever eaten traditional unleavened bread, in which we have a time or two here, you know it's very flat, it's dull, it's just dry. There's nothing about it that's very special. It's made in a hurry, and, and, and it's, it's just, it is what it is. It is a flat, thin wafer that's not really tasty. The leaven actually makes like sourdough, and so it, it causes the bread to rise, and it makes it soft and fluffy and actually somewhat enjoyable. And so God said at this point that they were to put leaven in this bread. And so that's, there's a distinction, and I want you to notice that. Maybe you also noticed as I was reading, there's a, another distinction in this festival. There was, this is the first time that God has told them to offer something specifically for sin. None of the other 
observances we've seen so far has God said, I want you to make an offering for sin. We've seen food offerings. We've seen burnt offerings. We've seen drink offerings, grain offerings, all kinds of offerings. And all of them at some level require an animal to be sacrificed and blood to be shed. But none of them have ever been specifically for the forgiveness or for the atonement of sin. Here we see it. It's not the last time you'll see it, but it is the first time we've seen it in the feasts. Then also there was a peace offering called out. This is a different offering than any of the others they've done, and they they had a special set of set of things that happened during the peace offering. This peace offering demonstrated that they were a covenant people of God, that there was a peace between them and God, and this offering was offered at Pentecost. And then, finally, one last distinction that they had in this festival was that there was a proclamation to be made. And a proclamation, you know, I'm proclaiming something to you. It's someone saying something out loud. Again, we don't know exactly what was said. We don't know exactly what people were uh, proclaiming. But everyone I read from and studied from, it seems that they were proclaiming the holiness of the day, that they were making some statement to how holy and how special this day was. And so there was some proclamation that went out across Israel for the holiness of this, of this day, the, the, the celebration of the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And now, all of that, I've given you a bunch of information, a bunch of little facts that maybe you won't remember. And honestly, I, I, I probably won't either after I've gone through this. <laughs> so, but, but what I will remember is what each one of these signify, because I think that's where it really hits home for us. I, I think that as you see these things and the, and the traditions that they followed and the commands that they followed and they were expected to follow as they, as they find fruit and fulfillment in the New Testament, I think you'll see that they really make sense. And, and not just make sense, but they challenge us and encourage us to celebrate God for all He's done. So we're just going to start through those four things and we're going to go over them again. But I'm going to put, you, put a New Testament spin on them. Because what we have is a lens by which we can look back into history and see what God was doing. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ has been offered as the sacrifice for the sin of His people. Acts 2, 38. This, Acts 2 is actually the retelling or the, or the, the reciting of what happened on Pentecost morning after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Peter stands and he preaches, and after he preaches, the people are cut to the heart. They recognize Jesus to be Lord and Savior, and they recognize that they've killed their Messiah, and they're cut to the heart, it says, and they are asking Peter, what do we do? And Peter says this, 238, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, pay attention to that, where he says, and <laughs> repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of sin. In the Passover, we have redemption. But the Passover celebration was not about forgiving sin as much as it was about overlooking it and allow or, or, or withholding mercy. Redemption didn't, got, didn't require God in that moment to forgive sin. He was certainly overlooking it. He was certainly accepting His people as they were. But Jesus, as that representation, as being represented by the sin offering in this, in this sacrifice, is also the forgiveness of sin. God, God, in the Passover, He never once mentions sin. He never once says, I want you to consider what I've forgiven you. 
He says, this is my wrath and I'm going to bring it out against the Israelite people, but I'm not going to let you feel it. Go out, paint your doorposts with blood. And the, and the angel of destruction is going to pass over. And you won't feel the weight of this judgment. See, the Passover being about redemption is about being a, a judgment being withheld. But here at Pentecost, we recognize that Jesus Christ is, through His blood, the source of our forgiveness for sin. And so they do go hand in hand, but they're not, they, they are distinct. It's two different functions. The blood providing redemption and the blood providing forgiveness. Two, two different functions in, in the same process, or in, in the same blood. It's without Jesus, there is no forgiveness. There is no removal of sin. Without Jesus, it, it, you, you cannot stand before God and ever expect Him to look at you and say that you are righteous. It's in Jesus Christ that this happens. And, and that's why Peter, when, when these people, they're, they're cut to the heart. We killed the Messiah. We killed the one we've been waiting on for generations. We killed Him. What do we do now? Is there hope? Is there some way that we can be redeemed? Is there something that can, can cover us now? Is there something to be done? Repent. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, that was all both functions of faith. Both functions of trusting that Jesus Christ was the Savior. And that now by believing in His sacrifice, they could be forgiven. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. It has been offered as the sacrifice for the sins of His people. And Jesus Christ is the peace offering that's been given for us. Ephesians 2, 14 Paul writes, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, in the context of that passage, Paul is really referring to two things. He's referring to peace between us and God. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no peace between us and God. We are in opposition to him. We are enemies of Him. We are far off from Him. But what this says is that this has brought reconciliation. This has brought Jesus Christ in His sacrifice, in His offering of His life, has brought us to a place where we can walk at peace with God. That we can, we can be on His side. We can walk on the same, on the same path. We can be friends. We can, we, we can be, uh, uh, um, the word is escaping me, but, but essentially we're, we're on the same team. No longer are we on the opposing team. No longer are we walking in opposition. No longer are we adversaries. But we are children of God. We are friends of God. We, we, we are on the same side as God. We walk in peace. But not only did he refer to the peace between God and man. See, in Christ, we also find peace with one another. In creation, what you see happen in the fall is you see God come and, and, and confront Adam and Eve about their sin. And in Adam and Eve's sin, when they rebelled against him, they knew at some level they were going to deal with these consequences from sin. They knew that God had said, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. But you know, the first thing we see happen is not God confront them in sin. The first thing that physically happened, that we have record of happening immediately as soon as they ate the fruit, do you know what happened? Their eyes were open and they saw they were naked and they were ashamed. And they wanted to cover up from one another. 
See, they began immediately hiding from one another. Husbands and wives, I mean, you, you, you can attest to this. This is a struggle to think about being completely open and honest with someone that you even live with on a day-to-day basis because sin is constantly dividing us. I don't want to downplay that it divided them from God. God sent them out from the garden. But don't miss the fact that it also separated them, them, them from one another. And in Jesus Christ, He is bringing us into peace and He is making what was broken, He's putting it back together. And we now, we now as believers in Jesus Christ have real opportunity for real fellowship, for real community, for, for really belonging and doing and walking in life together. Outside of Christ. I, I, I talked with a guy this, this week. He's like, man, I, I just don't get it. I, he said, when I, I look at the world, I, they want the same things we do and they, they come up with ways to have the same stuff we do. You know, they, they join clubs and they hang out together and they spend time together. What's different? They say they want to belong and they find ways to belong. What's different from the church? Why do we need the church? And, and at some level, he's right. Because when you look across the, when you look across the board and you look at people's lives, it's difficult to see what's happening inside. It's difficult to understand what the motives of people are when they're saying, well, hey, I just want to belong. And so I'm going to hang out with you and I'm going to let you belong with me and we're just going to belong together. But the reality is at the heart of that is a bunch of individuals striving for selfish motivations. Think about your life as a believer, one who belongs to Jesus Christ. Maybe one of the reasons you're here this morning is because you want to belong. <laughs> It sounds an awful lot like one a person in the world, right? A, a person who, who just wants to belong and has a selfish desire and motive to belong. We're not much different. We struggle with the same struggles. We have the same problems. You see, but the reality is, is that what Jesus Christ has done in us enables us to see something different. Because what you see happen in the church and what we're called to do in the church is not walk in with a desire for being fed, but a desire to come and join in to help feed. Knowing that all the while you will be fed. And that your needs will be taken care of. The, the whole purpose, the whole motive, the, the, the foundational thing that you're standing on changes. But it only changes in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, He tears down the wall of hostility. There's no need to hide. There's no need to cover up. We get to be real and authentic about our lives. We get to tell the truth about who we are. In fact, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today and you're in this room, then at some point you had to tell the truth about your life. You're fallen, you're broken, you're depraved, you're sinful, you're in need of a Savior. Every believer's had to be at that point. If you're a believer, you've had to be at that point. And the truth is, as believers, we might want to walk with that understanding every day. Because it's Jesus Christ who tears down the wall of hostility between us, one another, and the, the separation. He closes the gap between us and God. Jesus Christ is our peace offering. Along with that, we saw the two leavened loaves of bread. We, say, we see these two loaves of bread offered up as wave offerings. And these two loaves, they represent the people of God. They represent what, what, what God is going to do. I want you to think about it. The first fruits were offered. It was a, a sheaf of barley. 
And they went out to the field and they grabbed the barley and they brought it back and they waved it before God. And when they did that, it made all of the harvest that was going to come. It made all of the harvest from from the first fruits to the very last bale of hay brought in. It made it all holy unto God. But they didn't come this time and bring more wheat or more barley and wave it before God. What did they bring? They brought the result of the barley and the wheat. You see, the, the, the bread wasn't, wasn't what was consecrated, but the bread was holy because what was consecrated was made holy. And this becomes just like us in Christ. Christ is our first fruits. He's brought before us. He died in our place for our sins. His body was buried. He was put in the ground and he rose from the grave. He's our first fruits. And because of him, we like the bread that came later, we're the result of his work. We are the people of God. These two loaves, they represent God. And just like we're reading in Ephesians, it talks about two loaves ultimately because we see God taking two and making it one. They're both bread. They're both the same recipe. They're both the same thing. But it's two being made one. See, God had the Jews He was working with now, but that was not the only people that He ever was going to have. You see, God has the Jews and the Gentiles and He's brought them together and He has torn down the wall of hostility and we are one people before God. You see, they're not more special because they're Jews, because they're, they're Israelites uh, holding to God's promise. But in Christ, it's all been brought together. We all stand on the same footing. We're all loaves of bread offered up to God to be, to be made holy as, as, as a produce, as, as, as a product of what Jesus Christ has done. Our first fruits. And he says, he says these two loaves, they, they represent the one people of God, but, but also this leavened, they are leavened bread. Because the reality is, is that we still fight sin. Now Jesus Christ has made us new and he, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we are truly unleavened. But the beauty of the passage that, that Paul speaks to from 1 Corinthians 5 and he calls us unleavened, In the midst of it, the truth is being demonstrated that even though Christ has made us this and God looks at us and sees us as righteous, the reality is is that we still still struggle and we will still commit sin. And and this leaven represents all the way through the Bible, in fact. Leaven is a representation of sin. And this leaven in the bread is representative of the sin of God's people. And the reason there's an atoning sacrifice for sin in this sacrifice or in this feast where it hasn't been so far is because before this can be offered or as it's being offered, there has to be an atonement for sin. See, God is dealing with the sin of His people. And He's saying, you are still sinful. In fact, I mentioned this just a second ago. If... If you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are truly a member of His body, and I'm not talking about somebody that just has a name on a roll at a church. I'm not talking about somebody that comes for all the wrong reasons. I'm glad you're here. Even if it's for the wrong reasons, you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear that you need Jesus Christ. I'm glad you're here. But I'm talking if you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ and your life has been changed and you trust Him for life and you are looking to His sacrifice for your forgiveness and you are looking to His resurrected life for your hope, then you and I have all come to a place where we had to admit that we were sinners depraved in need of a Savior. That we had no hope apart from Jesus Christ. We had to admit that. But here's what happens. 
Here's the, here's the, here's the rub. As we walk into church and we put on our Sunday go to faces, our Sunday go to church faces, and we act like we don't do anything wrong, and we act like that we don't have any sin, and we act like we never needed a savior. But that's so false and so, so untrue. Because the hearts of every one of us, the hearts of every one of us are still struggling against that carnal person, that person of the flesh. And certainly his intent is to make you more holy. That's sanctification is the process by which God makes you more into the likeness of his son. But even Paul, Paul, who was maybe by some standards, uh, the, the Christian to set an example by, the, the guy to follow. I mean, Jesus Christ was perfect. He, he lived a perfect life and he's a great example. But if you were going to pick one other than Jesus, I think Paul's the guy. I mean, he's pretty stinking solid. But in Romans, he says, what a wretched man I am because the more holy God made him, the more depraved he recognized himself to be. You see, that's the reality of who we are apart from Jesus Christ. And so the world looks at us and, and the world says the church is hypocrites. You guys are all hypocritical. I don't want anything to do with the church because you're all a bunch of hypocrites. And that's the absolute truth. A greater truth is that everyone's hypocrites. Everybody that lives in the world, everybody that comes to church, we're all hypocrites. This is a little, let's just own it and let's be okay with it. We're, we're all hypocritical. We all say one thing. We all mean something else. We all have desires for ourselves. And we all try to make it look like we want other people to, to be good and be taken care of. We all have these selfish motives inside of us. We all have dual intentions. Let's just own it and be okay with that. We're no different than the world except that our, our hypocrisy, the church's hypocrisy is highlighted because we've spent so much time trying to tell people and prove to people that we are not as bad as we say we are. And so we develop these congregations of people who come to church. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I don't struggle. My life is so good. It's a bunch of junk. It's a lie. Everyone in this room has struggles of some sort, of one or another. It's a lie from the devil that you're going through it by yourself and that you're the only one. If you're a man sitting in this room today and you struggle with porn, you are likely not the only guy in this room that struggles with porn. If you're a lady in this room that's so dissatisfied with your husband that you're carrying on an emotional affair with someone else, likely in this room is another woman who has either experienced that or is experiencing that as we speak. Don't buy into the lie. The struggles we face are common to one another. Don't let that lie be told. Don't come to church expecting people to think you're perfect. How in the world can we stand before the world and say we need a Savior on one hand and then act like we don't on the other? What do we expect from them if that's what we do? We should be expecting to be called hypocrites. Oh, we are. That's the truth. And see, the leaven is in the bread. God has them put the leaven there because He knows. You're not fooling Him either. He knows who you are. But here's the beauty of it. See, we're not special because of who we are. We're not more important. We're not better than. We're only special because of Jesus Christ. You see, He's what sets us apart. He's what makes the distinction 
Apart from Him, we are no different than the worst of the worst. But in Him, we are made new. And our sins have been sacrificed for. They've been, there's been an offering given for them that we might be forgiven. There is a Passover that our redemption and that God's judgment is withheld and His grace is, is received. Jesus Christ, our first fruits, makes us special. You see, what, what, what I want you to understand, and especially I, I know that in this room, I know there are people sitting here that have been hurt by the church, that have, have, have felt pain because of the church, and they wrote it off. And they walked away. Because God's people hurt them so bad. I'm sorry. I, I wish it wasn't true. But the reality is, is that the people in this room, believers in Jesus Christ, the only distinction between us and the world is Jesus Christ. And you're certainly going to be hurt in the world. You're certainly going to have your feelings hurt. You're certainly going to have your toes stepped on. At least in the church, we have one that reconciles and brings us peace and enables us to walk in real fellowship and community. Jesus Christ, He's what makes us special. You see, it's not so much about what Jesus Christ, it's not so much about what we do, but what Jesus Christ has done that makes us special. We don't, we don't look we don't look at, at, the, at the craftsman's product. We don't look at a beautiful handmade bookshelf and admire it without admiring the craftsman who created it, who made it. When we celebrate God when we look at His people and recognize not how good they are, but how good God has been to make them who they are. And I just want you to think. I want you to think about who we've been made to be. In Christ, we are free from sin and death and given eternal life. In Christ, we are adopted as children of God. In Christ, we are forgiven by God. In Christ, we are blessed by God. In Christ, we are saved, reconciled, and loved by God. That's what makes us beautiful. Not ourselves, but the very work of Jesus Christ that He says you are accepted, that you're approved, that you belong to me and can walk with me. That's what makes us beautiful. Not the works that we proclaim to say that this I've got some good work I can hold up to God and I can hold up to the world and say that they must accept me. No, it's the very work of Jesus Christ and what He's done that makes us beautiful and acceptable. And let me just finish this last point with the proclamation you see, I told you about the, 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 the sacrifice for sin. I talked to you about the uh, being Jesus Christ. I talked to you about Jesus Christ being our peace. I talked to you now about how, how in the loaves it represents the people of God. And now I want you to think about the proclamation. See, on that morning of Pentecost, they were to proclaim the holiness of that day. They were to proclaim the goodness of God. I don't know exactly what they were to proclaim, but I know what happened one morning on Pentecost. Jesus Christ had died on Passover. He had raised on the first fruits. And 50 days later, the Pentecost happens and 120 of his followers are gathered together, no longer afraid, no longer cowering, but gathered together seeking God's face. And there was a rush of wind in the house so loud that it drew the attention of people all across the city. And there were tongues like fire that rested. You can read about this in Acts chapter 2. There was tongues like fire that rested on his followers. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to prophesy or they began to proclaim the goodness of God. And as the crowd gathered, they'd heard that rush of wind. I can't imagine how loud it was, but it was so loud that it drew them, thousands of people from across the city, it drew them to the house that the, that the, the followers of Christ were gathered in. And they show up and they're seeing people proclaim the goodness of God. 
and His good works. And they're hearing it in their own language. People who were gathered from all across the territory that spoke different languages were hearing God's good works in their own language as it was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so it begins to circulate through the crowd. Some of them begin to say, oh, it's a bunch of drunks. As if being drunk enables you to speak an intelligible language. It doesn't. Talk to some drunk people. They're not making much sense. Oh, they're just drunk. And Peter stands up from among them and he says, they're not drunk. This is the power of God. And he proclaims the first public proclamation of the gospel in its entirety in that Jesus Christ was sent by God to be your Lord and Savior. And you killed him. And now you can trust in him for life. The first proclamation on Pentecost morning as the church is birthed. Just one more tie, one more little factoid that might interest you. Pentecost was also the day that God entered into covenant with the Israelites when He gave them the law. When He, when He had been walking with them and leading them, He finished His covenant. He signed it into existence on that day as He, as, as from the mountain, He gives the law to the Israelites. On Pentecost morning, thousands of years later, Jesus Christ having died and risen again, being proclaimed, and Jesus and God sets in place the new covenant and His new people, the church. The church is birthed. What a beautiful working of our God. You see, but this proclamation, this proclamation at Pentecost, it's fulfilled in the proclamation of the gospel. And so in the proclamation of the gospel, let me just, let me just highlight just two things. When we proclaim the gospel, we highlight the work of Jesus Christ for others to see. See, when we talk about the gospel, we're no longer standing on our own soapbox on which we can try and present to people as if we've done something worthwhile. But we point all the glory to God and we celebrate God by proclaiming His goodness in Jesus Christ. When we proclaim the gospel, we enable others to enjoy the abundance of God's harvest. As a people of God, we are a harvest for God. Jesus Christ, in fact, at one point was, was, was looking out. He was speaking to the woman at the well and she had gone into the city after believing in Jesus and she's leading people out and Jesus looks over as the, as the Samaritans are coming out of this town, out of this village, and He says, the fields are white with harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that there would be workers to go out into this field that many might be hearing, that, that, that many would be heard and that the harvest would be abundant. You see, this harvest, as we proclaim the gospel, we allow others to enjoy the abundance of the gospel, or the abundance of God's harvest. It wasn't meant just for you and me. It wasn't meant just for the people sitting in this room. If we're all that God has, man, God's not really that powerful. But God is so powerful. If, if it's just the church of Springfield, if it's just the church, people that are sitting in the churches of Springfield, that's not really that much in relation to all the world. You see, God's harvest is meant to be enjoyed by many. In fact, in this, in the last verse of this passage as we read it, I don't know if you heard it or not, it really had nothing to do with the celebration of the Feast of Weeks, but it was an instruction for them as they harvested the grain. They were to leave the edges of the field unharvested. 
And any of the gleanings that fell as they were harvesting and moving across the field, they weren't to turn around and pick up. For those who were poor, representing the poor in spirit, for the sojourner, those who didn't belong to the Israelite people. You see, we, as the people of God, experiencing the abundance of His harvest, should be a people who, who it overflows out of, who, whose lives are such that it, not, it, it doesn't turn them away, but it draws them close so that they too can enjoy the harvest and the fruits of the harvest. And our proclamation of the gospel is where that starts. So, this Feast of Weeks, maybe there's some things you won't remember about it. But I hope you remember Jesus Christ as represented by this celebration as our sacrifice for sin, as our offering for peace. I, I hope you remember these two leavened loaves of bread as, our, as, as a representation of us as God's people, the, the, the result of His work. And I hope you remember that as we proclaim the gospel, others can enjoy this harvest. And today we can celebrate God by recognizing he, He's not just harvesting a bunch of wheat and barley. Remember, this is about life and death. Real souls are involved here. Real people. God is doing a work with people's lives and He is changing them. And we can celebrate God as we remember that. We can celebrate God by admiring what He's done. Instead of pointing fingers at the church and talking about how bad it is, certainly it's bad, it's got us in it. I'm here. I, I screwed it up the second I walked in. I'm sorry. Probably perfect before I showed up. But admire it. Not for what it is, but for what's been done to make it what it is. Admire it. He loves His church. You should love His church. And we can celebrate God by proclaiming the gospel so that others can see and we can celebrate God by leading others to do the same. Leading others to celebrate Him. I hope for those of you that are members of the way that that springs to mind the vision of this church to worship and lead others to worship. Because that's what celebrating God is all about. It's a lifestyle of worship. Adoration of the God who saved us. So that others can see it. And others too can worship this God that we know is worthy to be worshipped. In fact, the, the Christianity Explored class that Matt announced to you on October 28th, that's the very reason we're doing it. So I'm going I'm to encourage you, if, if you're new in, the, in your walk of faith, if you're, if you're disconnected and just trying to gain and grasp a better understanding of, of these truths again, if, if you are a believer who's solid, I, I want you to come and I want you to bring people. I want you to hear the gospel. I want you to see it harvest. I want you to see the harvest and I see the work that's gone into the harvest and see what it's producing. If you're a member of the church, I'm going to encourage you to make sure that you're one that brings one. I don't know who you know. I don't have the influence in the world that you have. I know I've got people I'm asking. If you're a member of the church, I'm expecting you to ask somebody too because we worship and lead others to worship. That's where we're going to see the Feast of Weeks fulfilled in our New Testament day. Let's pray. Father, You're good and gracious. We love You. We're grateful for Your work. Father, You are so high above us, so holy and righteous, perfect. 
And yet You've given us a way that we can stand in Your presence. You've made for us a way that we can know You and walk with You. We are grateful. Father, I pray right now that You'd help us to recognize how we can celebrate You every day by leading others to celebrate You. Father, I, I pray that, that, that if there's difficulty and, and dissension within this room, if there's a lack of unity, I, I pray that You would bring us to a place where we see Jesus and forgive as we've been forgiven. Father, I ask, I, I pray that through Your Spirit, You would just remind us that You have torn down the walls of hostility. That we are one body in one Spirit through one baptism and one Savior. Father, I, I pray that today, if, if there's some that are here that have never heard or, or never believed, never trusted You for their Savior, God, I pray that Your Spirit would rest on them. That it would open their eyes to the truth and that it would bring them from death to life. God, we thank You for this work, that, that Your harvest will continue and that You've given us now today a part of that harvest. So all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.